And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Today on our show, we're going to talk about the Asbury Revival and Saving America. Dr. Carol Swain joins me in studio, a very special guest, can't wait. Biden appoints the race agitator-in-chief. I'll tell you all about that. I'll be talking about that with Dr. Swain. And agenda journalism comes clean. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's first five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I want to tie about three things together in this first five. One is a speech that was given by Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, an American I deeply respect and appreciate, uh, given at the St. Thomas More Society, a, a Catholic organization, uh, during a banquet last Wednesday. Uh, and it was really very chilling and gripping what he had to say. He's talking about where we find ourselves in America today. I'm just going to give you a few clips, or not clips of him, but just read to you uh, what he had to say. Because he's a really deep thinker, and if you only heard of him in recent years because of the interaction with uh, the administration and prosecution, which or was more like a persecution, um, and his activism now, you may not realize he's a long-term uh, patriot, a, a patriot, and a, he served our country in the military, that, uh, all up to becoming Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, and he is talking about the condition of America today. He said... We are in the midst of a war. This is not politics as usual. We live in trying, perilous times. The nation is living in Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He said, the only misnomer is that many Americans have no clue what this short phrase, thou art, even means any longer. He talked about Reagan and Reagan's depiction of communism and the, as the evil empire. Reagan mocked for saying that. Later, people recognized Reagan was right on track, the idea of defining communism and Marxism as an evil. And then we have, he said, is because as a nation, we currently stand on a precipice, a high, high above a chasm so deep that it can swallow America whole. And he's talking about, he says, as a Catholic and an intelligence officer and a soldier who studied, stood against, and was prepared to fight communism, we never associated Marxist communists with evil. That's a very good point. They reviled, but the Marxists reviled and banned churches. They made sure God and the devil did not exist uh, in communist lexicon. Marx, according to Marx, the abolition, of, uh, the abolition of religion is necessary so people can become their own God, but to place a finer point, and this is something we're going to be talking about more next week with my guest next Tuesday, Virginia Prodom, who grew up in Romania under the communist dictator Ceausescu. Amazing story she has. But to make the finer point, to go back to what Lieutenant General Flynn had to say, the Communist Party must become the god to their people. He, General Flynn, went on to talk about the communist devils are whispering in the ears of our young people. You know, report on your parents and your co-workers. You'll be rewarded. Um, he talks about how when people in America today try to warn about the uh, growing communist movement around the world and how 
in America, the democratic socialists, socialists, Marxists, all those isms, they all really boil down to communism. People who are conservative and concerned are dismissed as kind of, you know, conspiracy theorists or a little bit, uh, you know, a little, little exaggerating. It really isn't as bad. Um, but he's talking about, he says, evil exists. It's not something that existed only during biblical times. He said, in today's America, there are two split camps, and the reason for this split are many, and I'll speak to a few, but it began slowly, says Lieutenant General Flynn, and crept into our society with a vengeance. And he talks about societies, all societies, when they lose their freedoms, never get them back. The left has completely taken God out of our, pub, out of our political discourse, even pressure states and communities to remove the Ten Commandments. I mean, I, I'm not going to read you the whole speech. But I do urge you to go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, and on the homepage under shows, drop down list of links. We put a link to this speech by General Flynn because he's right on the money. He's capturing the danger we're in in America, the seriousness with which the absolute radical left, the Marxists have taken over the Democrat Party, the, the communist movement is on the rise around the world. Definitely pressing in in America. Uh, a beautiful job summarizing it. Uh, and I want to uh, compare that uh, briefly to if you were um, in, um, if you watch a show this past Thursday, we brought Trevor Loudon to Dallas. Trevor Loudon, a brilliant uh, thinker, researcher, who's always been on the move trying to expose the connections and ties of money and power and education uh, between the communists and people who are in power in America today. So Trevor, it was a great show. We had we overfilled studio. We have an in-studio audience on Thursdays. Overfilled, great show. He finished our show last Thursday, and we, had him, we brought him to Dallas for a few days. He had three other events where he spoke. I want to tell you something that emerged in these conversations as he kind of got deeper and deeper talking to people. He is trying to expose, in fact, the two latest books he has, it's a part one and part two, exposing the very direct ties uh, there are between at least 30 members of the United States Senate, current people voting on your future, 30 members of the Senate, and the Communist Party, either CCP of China, communist parties here in America, communist movements, that the communist invasion of America right now is not bombs and bullets, but it is the ideology creeping in, and those people with power to rule your life embrace those ideas. So there was the, that um, issue. Uh, I want to just urge you to think about what Trevor Loudon had to say, and I, I can't impress upon you strongly enough um, the idea that communism is real and, and pushing to come here. But the answer, and the, the real thing I want to get to about Trevor Loudon was, as people were asking him questions, he really shifted around and began talking about the place of faith. And, you know, the answer to the question, what's the difference? Why? What's so bad about if we have communism in America? Can't we be America and be communist? Why, why, why are they in conflict? And he talked about the idea of faith, the simple idea that America's founding idea, which I say in this show at least once a week, the founding idea of America is that each of us are children of God with the right to live in freedom, the God-given right, as recited in the Declaration of Independence, the God-given right to live in freedom. And that is a primary relationship. There is America's government was designed to honor and protect that right of the individual to live in freedom, to pursue their version of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And that is very much under threat in today's society. Now turning very quickly, and I'm a little over my five, but I'm going to finish with this uh, reference to, we'll talk about it more probably next week. You may have noticed in the media that there is a revival beginning at a college in, uh, I think it's in Kentucky, named Asbury College. A-S-B-U-R-Y, Asbury University. They had chapel there. It's a Christian college. They had chapel on February 8th, and students went, 
and they're still there. The, uh, this has turned into a revival movement at Asbury University, and they have people now flying in from countries around the world wanting to see it, wanting to be part of it, wanting to celebrate it. And I, I, there are now other universities mimicking that. And I'm telling you all this by way of saying, I think as America has pushed God out of society and tried to make sense of life out of just the material world and you know, get a shot for this and a job for this and get surgery if you want to change who you are and become somebody else, there's an emptiness there that if you don't start with a notion that a God exists and that God is actually the purpose of life is to serve God and to live out your God-given purpose, your God-given identity. And I think for the longest time, the left has tried to push God out of life, not just make it hard to go to church on Sunday. Those are, you can still go to church on Sunday or whatever day you go to church. But the point, the ideological perspective of pushing socialism, pushing communism, pushing leftism is driving God out of society, out of our belief in ourselves, what we think about ourselves as a country, resulting in a younger generation that actually is filled with young people who are yearning to find meaning yearning to find a deeper purpose than the next um, sexual identity somebody on the left thinks up or the next um, job you can get to fix this or adjust this or change this. People are looking for a deeper meaning to life. And this is really explains, I believe, this revival happening at Asbury and spreading to other colleges. Much more on this next week. But that, for now, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. So I mentioned at the start of the show, we have a guest in studio. Dr. Carol Swain is here. And I think she's been on the show a couple of times, but I think it was always via Skype. can't remember. But anyway, she happened to be in Dallas. And um, I probably could have spent the whole first five telling you about her background. I'm going to give you a two-minute summary, and you'll discover as we talk to her uh, what an amazing, amazing woman uh, she is. This is a woman who grew up uh, in the East Coast in a very low-income family, in a family with was, you know, just abject poverty. They had 12 children, 12 children. She was a second of 12, uh, living in nothing less than absolute poverty, a shack without running water, sharing two beds with her 11 siblings. She was not able to finish high school. Her dad had dropped out. Her mom had dropped out. She didn't finish high school then at that time um, and really had a, you know, a life where most people would look at and say, wow, there's no future there. But this is a woman who decided this isn't enough. I'm not going to do this. So she uh, really of her own internal strength, uh, just determination to be more. She got her GED, her, you know, the high school degree. Then she went on, she got some jobs. She was a cashier at McDonald's, a door-to-door -door salesperson, an assistant in a retirement facility. Then she got an associate degree from Virginia Western Community College. And then she went on to graduate magna cum laude with a BA in criminal justice from Roanoke College. And then she got a master's degree in political science from Virginia Tech, <clears throat> excuse me, and she finished with a PhD in political science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And so that was in 1989. She then in 2000 earned a Master of Legal Studies from Yale Law School. So that beginning I described to you to where she was a professor at Vanderbilt and Princeton teaching law and politics or American government. She'll tell us more. I want to give you that background to understand what an amazing woman we have in the studio, studio today. So let's welcome to the show Carol Swain. Hi, Dr. Swain. Thank you. You are so welcome. Thank you for just for being you. You're an amazing person. Well, um, after all I laid out for everybody, before we get into the, you know, I want to ask you about some things happening today. 
but what in the world gave you the strength to move forward like you did in your life? Is it faith? Is it? Well, I mean, I came to my faith in my 40s, but I was always spiritual. And there's a difference between the two. And uh, I'm working on my memoir uh, as we, not literally as we speak, but right now I'm in the process. <laughs> yep. And uh, I would say that um, as a child, I always knew that there was something I was supposed to do. And I had a sense of urgency. And I didn't feel as if I fit in with my family or, you know, really even fit in anywhere. And um, now looking back from where I am today, I can say that God knew me as he knows yes. all of us, that I was called from a young age. And my mother uh, told me that as a child, things came out of my mouth that didn't seem to have come from a child. And uh, I always had that sense of urgency. And when I married at 16, I was not pregnant. It was to get away from home. And uh, by the time I was 21, I had three small uh, children. And people came into my life, you know, who encouraged me. One was a medical doctor uh, who told me that I was intelligent, I was attractive, I could do more with my life. Later, um, I, you know, looked up that doctor about four years ago. He was 25 when I was 20. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, and, and he remembered me. And he never knew what happened to me because he was not on the internet oh and he gosh. didn't watch TV. And so it was like a shocker when uh, I called him out of the blue. And the reason I called him was that there was a maintenance man in my house, really blue collar white guy, uh, trying to figure out how I had the things I had you know, accumulated. And I showed him the video that Coral Ridge Ministry did of my life that had reenactments, the yes. kind of poverty. And he uh -huh. said, did you ever tell that doctor what became of you? And I said, no. He said, you have to do it. You have to do it right away. And so I did. And, um, uh, but I mean, I didn't plan to become a university professor. Uh, I would say that God put people in my life that encouraged me. I went to a community college just to get a better job. Um, and before even going there, I was working in nursing homes as a nurse's aide. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I, I, taking care of elderly people, changing them, bathing them when they passed away. And that experience would come in handy later when I cared for my mother who recently passed uh, at the age of 92 and a half, that God, you know, prepares you. And so I was prepared back then for what was going to happen later because I kept my mother for 13 years and so she passed on January 23rd of this year. Yeah, I, I saw that and I'm sorry. I know it's hard to lose your mom at any age, no matter what the circumstance. I know yeah. it's hard. I'm just so impressed by your life and I, I, I'm, I love, and with your humility, I mean, because you really, you, uh, to, from the background you came from, your life growing up, I mean, you ended up teaching at the among the premier universities in America. And I was very, very shy, and it's, it's the last profession I would have chosen for myself. I can't say that I chose it. I can say that I was pushed into it, but I also can say that God had a plan for my life that someone from my background could never have imagined. We, I didn't know anything about being a university professor. No one in my family knew anything about being yeah. a university professor. And, uh, and so I started off wanting to be a store manager I uh, got my two-year degree, and I was told I needed a four-year degree, and so, and I knew that I needed to distinguish myself. I need to graduate with honors, 
And what I did was check out books in the library on how to make A's in college, uh, how to oh take essay gosh. exams, how to do objective tests. And I gra that's how I graduated magna cum laude, working 40 hours a week, nights and weekends at the community college library. That was God because I landed a job because I was dependable that even allowed me to take my children to work when I needed to. So. Okay, all students in America listening, you no longer have any excuses, any excuses about the bad grades or anything when you hear this story. Um, but I also, the other reason you, uh, I know you from other uh, events and organizations we're part of is you've become a, a spokesperson for conservative values, and that is a rare thing among black Americans. I mean, it's usually a small percentage of black Americans who, who will vote uh, with a conservative side. But you write and you explain things and you write in ways that is very, um, it's a good term, friendly, readable. I mean, Understandable. It's because, of, I think it's because of where I came from. Like, again, I was a high school dropout, one of 12, started at a community college. And I've always, you know, wanted to be understood. And so, you know, I don't use, um, what, what are you, what's the expression for people that use these big words when a simple one will do? <laughs> <laughs> there is a word. I don't know. I, don't I know, know what you're talking about. I don't know what that but, word is uh, either. But yeah. I but I've always been into communication and I think my background has also given me creative ideas that I was able to distinguish myself as a political scientist. So um, my first book was published by Harvard University Press. It won the highest prize a political scientist can win. It won three national prizes. It was cited by the US Supreme Court. And what book was that? What was it titled? It was called Black Faces. Black Interests, the Representation of African Americans in Congress, and it was published in 1993 and updated in 1995. And the book was con is considered prescient because when I, I argued against the creation of majority black districts, I was a Democrat at the time, and mm -hmm. I, I argued that political party was more important than the race of the representative. Uh, and as long as, you know, blacks held the views they did that best be represented by Democrats. Consequently, it didn't make sense to elect majority black districts to, to create majority black yeah. districts because that elected more Republicans. And so in the book, I talked about what would happen to blacks uh, 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 in Congress if Republicans ever took over the House of Representatives. It happened the year after my book was published. Right. Everything I see, it happened, uh, and no one could imagine that because in 40 years, it hadn't happened. My book came out and it just nailed it. But one of the most important things I said was that whites would support black candidates and that when black candidates lost, it wasn't because of the racism, it was because they were more liberal than whites and that whites could represent blacks, Blacks could represent whites, and that there was a trade-off between having a more black faces um, and and black substantive representation. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, everything you said just said right now is so logical. It's almost undeniably logical, but it was really startling, probably to some people. And oh, you know, they labeled me as a conservative, you know, and that was a bad word back then. And <laughs> When I was an undergrad, my professor, one of my professors told me that I was a, Repu he said, you know, you're really a Republican. 
And you said, oh, no, not me. Okay. I definitely said that. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, so I've told our listeners before, I, all the way, college and law school, I voted Democrat. And I, I did. And I just did it because I had been taught or told, you know, because they, they care about poor people and they want to make life fair. Like, okay. Yeah, I, I thought, I'm not bragging that I was very insightful about that, uh -huh. but that's why. I thought yeah. Republicans were the party of the rich and Democrats were the party of the working people. And, uh, you know, I didn't really understand, you know, because Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, how the Democrats, you know, had manip manipulated race. And in my home state of Virginia, uh, there was um, a dynasty, the Bird Machine, um. uh, that fought against school integration. And so it was like probably 1969 when schools were integrated uh, uh, in Roanoke, Virginia and Bedford County, the place where I grew up. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education was in 1954. Virginia yep. led the massive resistance. And when Linwood Holton, Holton, Virginia's first Republican governor, was elected, one of the first things he did was take his small children by the hand and enroll them into Richmond Public Schools that were majority black at the time. God bless him. I never knew that story. I never knew that story. It really is, you know, I, the reason I originally reached out to you, because I did want to talk with you about this um, I, I, this decision that Joe Biden made, uh, President Biden, or right. the, the occupier of the White House. We'll get to him in a second. The uh, occupier of the Oval Office. Um, he's put Susan Rice in charge of this plan to essentially put critical race theory embedded in the federal bureaucracy. I'm going to come back to that in a minute because that is why I reached out to you. But now that we're having this conversation, it is such an interesting thing how politics and race interact and how the presumption, in my view, the presumption of the Democrat Party is that if you that you have a certain skin color or you're a woman, uh, you're just or especially you're a single well, woman. Let me tell you, I was always rejected by the Democrats. Like I was at Princeton and, you know, I was started off as a hotshot, uh, got a signing bonus and... I was never invited to the Clinton White House. Everyone, all the other blacks got invited. I was never invited. And my book got wow. me labeled as a conservative. And I was told that I was a sellout. And some of that had to do with the fact that I was successful by what some people would say would be the white man's standards. And I had uh, black political scientists threaten me at the time and say, you know, that I acted as if I didn't need black people. They were going to show me. And I was tenured. I was tenured early. Uh, but it, it tore me apart, and at that time, I was not, uh, a, I was more of an agnostic. I was not in a church, not really, uh, I believe, one God, many paths. And so when they came after me, I had no fan. I had nothing as far as the support network. I was not in a church, and, um, and then, then I questioned whether or not I was wrong and they were right, because I felt like, how could anyone from my background, you know, accomplish what I did? And, and, you know, like when you talk about equity and all of these DEI, um, what enabled me and people like me to be successful, I would say that uh, I always believed in the American dream. I believed if I worked hard, I could make a difference. I was always told that if you got an education, you'd get a good job. That's what I was aiming for. And when the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, uh, all of a sudden, uh, discrimination was against the law. And so what I was able to uh, compete in was an environment where affirmative action, you know, came came in later, yeah. but non-discrimination through the Civil Rights uh, Act. 
And uh, when you look at the Equal Protection Clause, the Civil Rights Act created opportunities for women, white women, as well as racial and ethnic minorities, but it was based on non-discrimination, uh, equal accommodations. Mm -hmm. And diversity used to mean that colleges and universities sought out people like me. They wanted to give people opportunities, but you had to prove yourself. Like you, you got an opportunity to go to the university, but you could flunk out. You know, you had to work hard, and I chose to become an honor student. Uh, and I put in the time. I was not at the parties. I was not part of the black student unions. Uh, I was very, very focused because I needed to finish my education. I had children at the time. I didn't have any time to waste. Yeah. I, I would tell, first of all, while I'm on a quick break here uh, in this conversation, for our radio listeners at the bottom of the hour, 30 minutes past the hour, you're going to go off to a break. Do not go away. So a three-minute long break. We'll be right here. Do not go away. Everybody else watching, uh, we're right here. I also want to do share for our um, audience. Uh, you've written many books, and I, I don't know why. I I scanned the list this morning. I picked two covers. I just want first one. I want to show this one cover. This is a relatively new book, September 2021, Countercultural Living: What Jesus Has to Say About Life, Marriage, Race, Gender, and Materialism. Leave that up there for just a second, okay, Emilio? I mean, first of all, the title could probably alienate. A fair number of people in America. I mean, seriously, I, I what I'm blown away by your bravery to just speak what you think, and then you're taking on what Jesus says about life, marriage, race, gender, and materialism, and then uh, real life. It's in parentheses, I guess, real life theology. So, well, first of all, yes, I'm not a theologian, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express once. <laughs> okay, and you. Go ahead. And uh, you can bring bring us back, please. And that book was com uh, a church, a pastor at a church in Nashville, Harpert Christian Church. His name is Bobby Harrington, uh, and um, he has an organization called Renew.org. Uh, he uh, recruited me to write that book, and it was uh -huh. one of the most difficult books I've written in my life because I had a ten thousand, I think ten thousand word limit. It was, it was it was meant to be a short book. And, um, and you know, he gave me the topics, and I had to figure out, you know, what I, how I was going to approach it and what I was going to say and, uh, and all of those things. And w what makes the book, you know, and then it was one of the most difficult books I've written in my life. And I've written many books. <laughs> you have. I want to get you to tell more about them, but difficult because you really force you to think through deeply of these. That, um... Uh, because I had to each chapter, I mean, I, I felt like when I agreed to do it, I thought it was going to be a piece of cake. Each <laughs> chapter, 2,000 words, you know, along, I thought, or five op-ed pieces, you know, and uh, and so I thought it was going to be so easy, but it was so difficult. And what I, so I would think I couldn't do it, and I'd pray about it, and, you know, I can't do it, I can't do it, then I'd do it. And so by the time I got to the third chapter, I realized that thinking I couldn't do it was part of the process, you know, that I, that God was always enabling me to do it. And I draw on my own life. Like, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've had a messy life. I got saved in my 40s. And so I've lived in the culture. Uh, and I understand the culture. And I understand countercultural living. I understand my life before Jesus, my life after Jesus. And so in the life chapter, it's not just about abortion. It's also about euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, um, 
the animal-human uh, fusion research where they create creatures. Yeah. Um, but some of the, those types of issues, but when I talk about life and abortion, I share my own abortion story, that I got an abortion in my early uh, 20s when they were first legalized. Mm -hmm. uh, when I talk about marriage, I mean, that's something I've never been successful at. I've been married twice, once when I was 16, once when I was 24. Uh, I've been divorced much longer than I was ever married. Um, and so I share that uh, b because there was, there is a marriage that God instituted, um, you know, and it's, and it's their way, but then God has a, God invented the whole idea of marriage and he has a formula. And so like, uh, I've never had a Christian marriage, but I have reason to believe that one would work. It makes a lot of sense, uh, those tenets. And with gender, like I'm a woman that, you know, has been a single woman uh, in the church and in academia. So there are things I understand. And so in the chapter about, uh, I think this is one about gender, I talk about the, the roles, the biblical roles for males and females, but within the church, you know, we have had a church to movement where women were abused and taken advantage of by pastors. And so there is a need for a system where people are safe to report information. And the single woman like me may not experience the church in the same way as someone who's married. So I understand that. But the whole thing about the book is uh, we have to look at what God told uh, Jeremiah to tell the people, like we are living in modern day ancient Babylon, but we're supposed to, you know, to plant, <clears throat> uh, 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 you know, to live yeah. within that culture, but not become a part of that culture. Uh, and so uh, in each of the chapters, I draw on my own life, even with materialism. I've never thought of myself as being materialistic, but materialism is not just about ac uh, the acquisition of goods. And it can Quality be, yeah. it can be, you know, the, the search for fame or search for recognition. Uh, I mean, some of the things that we wouldn't think of, uh, but we can all be guilty of putting something ahead of God. Just what I was going to say about materialism, if you think that all there is, if you have an atheistic view and you think all there is is the material world, then that is a, it's a, it's a draws down, it, destroy, it destroys your sense of hope, of mm -hmm. faith, of purpose, because all there is in the material world and all you're trying to do is fix it and, and fix um, society and fix bodily things. I mean, versus a, a higher sense of God's presence and power and well, reality. Too, but also how we live our lives because, uh, you know, within the church, a lot of the uh, pastors are people that uh, have a downfall. And I mean, this is something that I fear, you know, even still for myself, because a lot of times when God blesses people and they become prosperous, that's the most dangerous time for them because they begin to think it's about them and they begin to, uh, who they truly are as far as that character is revealed. And some of them seem to want to worship and, you know, you look at the, uh, you know, maybe we don't want to talk about the prosperity pastors. They may be some of your best friends. No, but, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I go right ahead. I, this, well, I, mean, I don't even know where we're going. Look at anyway. the book of Revelation, uh, yeah. where uh, the church that one of the churches that get commended, I believe, is Church of Philadelphia, but because of their poverty and their tribulation and their faithfulness, and so um, you know, they these people were commended. The Church of Leo, with Laodicea. That was the, you know, the rich, the prosperous church. I have need for nothing. 
And so you see that uh, with the prosperity pastors, sometimes they make the people feel that if they were really, you know, doing what they were Good. supposed to be doing, yeah. they would be rich. They wouldn't be suffering. They wouldn't be poor. Uh, but right. that's not what Jesus says. Right. <laughs> I'm with you all the way. You know, I, I would love many avenues of conversation, but because I don't want to run out of time mm -hmm. to ask you about. So uh, this focus, I mean, what um, President Biden announced is an outgrowth of this focus on the by the left uh, in, in this country on critical race theory. And, you know, I, I thought among the many summaries people make of it, I mean, I've talked more deeply about the, the Marxist roots of it. And, but, you know, in shorthand way, Governor DeSantis referred to critical race theory, which says, he said, basically, um, is encouraging people to hate America and, um, and to hate everybody and to judge everyone else by skin color. And we don't do that in America. We teach kids to love America and we don't judge by skin color. We don't, we don't defi define people as, uh, by skin color. So getting at critical race theory and, and kind of tied to diversity, equity, inclusion, this endless focus on skin color, race, ethnicity, national origin, rather than merit, um, has really uh, overtaken the public schools, overtaken the and academia, where we can talk more about that too, but is overtaken to the point that Joe Biden has appointed, uh, and I've often thought she's among the most leftist of leftists, Susan Rice, to implement critical race theory throughout the federal bureaucracy. And so I just, you know, as a, an amazingly accomplished woman and an author and coming from the background you did, What's your reaction to all that? Is that well, harmful, well, good, or what? First of all, you know, I have this book, Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House. Wait one second. Put that cover up, too. We have that. We'll quick show okay. our listeners that, that cover. That was published in 2021, and it's not a very long book, but it was published because there were so many parents and people trying to figure out what was happening in our public schools. And I can tell you that critical race theory uh, is... It's racist to the core because it does divide people along skin colors. It argues argues pretty much that um, you know that white people are, are, have racism in their DNA, that all white people are privileged, that all minorities are victims, and uh, it um, is always divisive because it comes out of Marxism and conflict theory. Right. And it can never bring about racial reconciliation and healing. Uh, and it's something that I would say, during the time I was getting my education, it was in graduate school, it was in certain departments, uh, but it has taken over every uh, branch of government, every entity, including uh, the medical profession, where it's really scary, where you have these doctors uh, professing uh, allegiance to the principles of critical race theory, which is very dangerous because I can remember interviews of doctors saying if two people were having a heart attack and one was a minority and one was white, that they would do the minority first, you know, to uh, take into consideration past discrimination. All of this stuff. Um, yes. Oh, my gosh. Go ahead. But, I mean, it, it is uh, critical race theory is anti-American. It violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It involves discrimination against people because of the color of their skin or their, uh, you know, their nationality, all of these different things. So uh, it's against the law. It runs counter to the Constitution. It runs counter to uh, Christian values and principles. And unfortunately, it's in the churches through social justice. So when you ask me about... Um, 
Susan Rice. I mean, I can tell you that as a person who was in academia until I retired in 2017, I watched how something that had been at, at the universities for decades, how when the Obama administration came into power, uh, especially during his second term, that's when it became like on steroids. And uh, it started infecting the K through 12 back then through um, restorative justice where teachers couldn't suspend the kids that were disrupting the classroom. And they're still very difficult in many places to California, suspend unruly kids. And so um, Susan Rice, you know, she, she, uh, she was one of the Obama people. And there's every indication that Joe Biden is not running the White House. Oh, and I, Joe I, Biden is not in charge. But it seems that Obama is having his second term. And so he put us on motion for all of this. Yep. And now you see it being enacted through the DEI and the CRT that has infected every branch of government, including the U.S. military. I, I, I'm 100% with you. I often say it in this show that whoever's really in charge, but it's not Joe Biden. I mean, I think it's Obama and Susan Rice and George Soros in the mix somewhere. It's a bunch of people who have the- But the, also the, in the bu bureaucracy, in those, those civil servants that are yes. embedded, the ones that are impeded uh, uh, the ability of President Trump you know, to enact his agenda because he was never fully in control. He was never allowed to be president because he had people undermining him. And up until the Trump administration, normally presidents got a hundred days. That was the honeymoon period. And during that time, you know, people listened to them. They could advance their agenda. You may recall the day after President Trump was uh, elected, you know, that, that there was a first, that's when the insurrection and the coup really started. And then uh, it was unabated yes. the whole time. Couldn't agree, more. Couldn't agree more. Didn't you actually hold a position uh, in, as the Trump campaign was moving along? Were you? No, at, at the very end, and okay. when it was over, when okay. it was totally over, because uh, I got the call from the White House probably December fifth, twenty twenty, when uh, the the election was being challenged by Trump, and we had our first meeting on December twentieth, uh, twenty twenty, and. Um, and there's a story, you know, going around about that meeting, which is true. Okay, okay. <laughs> and it has to do with, I, you know, the administration, for the most part, it was pretty much over. And I felt like, you know, like my whole thing as a Christian is, you know, why now, for the first time, am I getting invited to the Oval Office? And I was praying, 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 and I had a devotional, the military edition of the 91st Psalm. And I felt like I was supposed to give it to uh, President Trump. And, uh, and I had an opportunity to give it to him, but also to speak to him uh, about, I was seated beside him because I was vice chair, and I gave him a word that I believe the Lord would have had me give to him. And, uh, and there are different versions of the story going around Washington. In my memoir, the true version will be revealed of what I said to him and how he Oh, uh, there's a teaser. When's this memoir going to be ready? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe sometime in the fall. But you know something, I have, I pretty much, I didn't, you know, go public with the conversation. Other people that were in the room, there were probably about 20 people in the room, some cabinet members, when um, I spoke up because the president was going on and on about the election. I agree that the election was stolen, 
but I felt like the Lord had a word for him, and I gave him that word, and uh, and I feel comfortable sharing it now because other people have shared it. In fact, um, uh, Be Betsy DeVos, mm -hmm. in the back of her new book, uh, uh, there's a, a little bit about it. Okay. Says the gutsiest now you really uh, got me going says here. the gutsiest thing that they've ever seen done, but I did what I felt like the Lord was leading me to do. Dr. Carol Swain, you're just amazing. Honest to goodness. I mean, you're, I want to uh, do a quick thing because people will argue, even good friends of mine who are not, you know, really radical leftists, uh, but people will argue, well, what other vehicle is there if you don't somehow force, uh, you know, discussion about the past and, and discussion about past segregation? We'll never understand we, each other. But we do understand. That, yes. I mean, the history, um, black history is American history. The stories have already been out there. What's dangerous is the revisionism, the turn down the statues, uh, the uh, imitating of China's cultural revolution. I That's know. what's dangerous. That's what's happening right now. And the progressives don't care about black people. They don't care about gay people. They don't care about these people that they claim to be representing. They're using them. And I think the ultimate goal is to bring down America. Oh, amen. And I think that's exactly right. In fact, your comments are very much in line uh, with what I mentioned. Trevor Loudon was here last Thursday and uh, talking about how much how much inroads the communists, not just the CCP, but the ideology, the thinking, and has invaded the Democrat Party to where they really, what they're talking about is taking down America. Although they would say... Well, let me tell you this. Okay. <laughs> you go. I'm sorry. I've already put this out in a tweet, tweet which said, you know, have you ever, I can't remember how I, I worded it, but sometimes it feels like to me that communist China is really already in control and oh, that yeah. America has fallen and that we are subservient and we ha have fallen because of our leaders. The fact that they were, they were, a, they sold their souls to China and they have never stood up against the real human rights abuses that have taken place in that nation. And so, like, we've done this to ourselves. And so I feel like uh, this whole thing about Ukraine, and I know that, you know, a lot of people think that we're doing great stuff. We're supposed to defend the Ukraine. That was something that Obama helped set up Zelensky. And, um, mm -hmm. and you know, they have used that. And I think China benefits from the conflict with the U.S. being so involved, all the money being poured into the Ukraine, that's allowed, Ch allowed China to advance its own military goals. In many ways, it is the world power. We enabled them, and they own us. Okay, you, you uh, amen to every word you said. Um, I will mention, first of all, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's really important to recognize that. We had... Um, Sydney Powell was on the show. I can't, she happens to live around here, and I can't remember when it was, several months ago. But I made some comment about, you know, America, you know, speeding over the edge of the cliff to socialism. And she said, oh, we're, we're down the cliff. We're right now trying to grab on. Is there anything to hold on to to pull ourselves back up? And as to China, uh, there's a great thinker in Washington, Sam Faddis, and, and you may read his thing. Sam Faddis writes at AND Magazine, A-N-D Magazine, brilliant, brilliant guy, long-term um, CIA guy. I mean, and like on our side, like actually loves America, CIA. And so he's long-term CIA. And he will describe he who occupies the White House, Joe Biden, as 
he that he Biden is a controlled asset of China. Hunter yeah, Biden, he's, a, he's, a, he's puppet. a puppet. He's a controlled asset. So here we are watching as China is expanding, acting militarily aggressive, and our White House is on their side. Well, let me tell you this: uh, Why is it that all of these explosions and burning down of of, of food production uh, plants and industries? Uh, why isn't that something that the FBI has made a priority? I mean, there's no indication that they are even looking at these things as being organized, yet they seem to be quite organized. And even as we speak, there was an explosion uh, today in Florida, uh, oh. and there have been, uh, I guess, two in the last couple of weeks. Well, there was a big train wreck in Palestine, Ohio, and I actually heard someone local interviewed saying it's Palestine, not Palestine, whatever. And then there was another explosion in Ohio several days later. I mean, or well, what, let me tell you about East. Uh, what, did they, what, what, what are they calling themselves? Is it Palestine? They're saying they, they could pronounce the name of their town Palestine. Ohio. I, I don't care. Whatever. Pal Palestine. Yeah. That, okay. <laughs> Uh, but they, 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 some, many of those people that lived there were extras in a film that was published in 2022, a film that aired about a train wreck in White Ohio. Noise. <laughs> White Noise is the film, right? Uh, I it's don't remember White the, Noise. the name of it, but, but I, I, I think the left, um, they use the media to, to set, I mean, that they plant ideas in the minds of the activists and the crazies. Yep. And now I'm going to say something, you know, that may seem really controversial and all this stuff like that. It's like, um, because I'm not going to remember the exact name of this book, but maybe a year or two before Scalia, quote, died. Yeah. That was a uh, fiction about uh, killing conservative justices. There was a book written about killing conservative justices to make room on the Supreme Court. And then I remember reading in the New York Times stories about how the justices did not have security and how Scalia would take any hunting trip. All you had to do was dangle a trip in front of him and he would take it. That was published, you know, before Scalia turned up dead at that ranch owned by Here a in Democrat the donor. I'm sorry, owned by, excuse me, <laughs> owned by. A Democrat donor. Okay, in the great state of Texas. Okay, uh, you know, I, this is really great. I want to have you in just a minute um, talk about kind of um, what you would do if you could be in charge of, you know, uh, in Washington, you could try to implement the correct policies to help us get away from the focus of critical race theory. Is it just abandon all of it? But before oh, I, I mean, do that, oh, go ahead. I want to quickly uh, mention one thing. You know, we talk about in this show, we, we have all these great guests and they are insiders in Washington and they tell all the things that are going on. And I've talked many times about the World Economic Forum and how Klaus Schwab, they actually do plan on, on ruling the world. And there are many very powerful Americans, both sides of the political aisle, but very powerful Americans, bankers, you know, the wealthy Wall Street elite uh, and leaders around the world that meet and they actually regularly talk about whether it's using COVID or climate change, the acquisition of their power, that kind of dumbing down of the notion of individual sovereign nations, a growing globalist government. And you can say, yeah, I know. And, and people, I mean, I get comments on the show, people saying, well, who cares what these people talk about at Davos? They sit around thinking they're all powerful. I just want to share one little ditty, uh, one little point. So World Economic Forum, you know, as I say, many people have gone there and some of them may not have, don't have the globalist mission in mind. Some of them don't really want America to collapse, but 
as the, or the uh, World Economic Forum grows in power and recognition and people sh show up because they want to be part of this new movement, they're going to be the elite moving the world, and you think, well, it doesn't matter in America. So we had this great committee formed by the new slim majority of Republicans in the House uh, called the Select Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. And I was thrilled to have that formed. Love the idea. Love the idea that we are actually acknowledging openly the Republican Party saying, what the left is doing to America, this is weaponized. The government's being used against the people, whether it's Department of Justice and the FBI and the January 6th prisoners, uh, go back to under Obama where we had the IRS coming after organizations that were not, that were Tea Party-like. Just one little fact I thought was very interesting. So right here in the great state of Texas, uh, we have a gentleman who's serving Congress. In fact, he serves, uh, he served um, uh, in the district I used to live in, although we moved away now. His name is Colin Allred. Colin Allred is a member of Congress, and he's a second or third term, I think second term, and he's uh, been to the World Economic Forum, which doesn't necessarily make him a bad guy, uh, but he's been really kind of involved in it. So uh, this, um, they, had a, they have a Young Global Leaders of the World Economic Forum, Young Global Leaders of the World Economic Forum, and this Colin Allred was one of them. So Colin Allred, and he's now been placed, heaven knows why, like Kevin McCarthy, permitted beyond the select subcommittee on the weaponization of, um, of federal government. And you think about why doesn't the federal government expose these things, fix these things, change these things? Well, they have all the decorum. They sit around the committee, and Colin Auburn says, well, that's not really, I don't think we should say that. And they're very polite constituents, very polite, you know, spokesmen or, or you know, representatives on the, on the Republican side say, well, okay, we'll tone that down. We need to be treating these people as enemies, enemies of America. If you don't want to have a sovereign nation, then you're not an American, and you shouldn't be serving the federal government, and you shouldn't be exalting the World Economic Forum as an entity to perhaps spread its mission of globalism. I wanted to get that in because all that we've been talking about today, and what we talked about with Trevor Loudon, and, and actually we're having an interview next week with Congressman Chip Roy. I uh, can't wait to tell you all what he has to say. He's been one of the, he's like five or six top to me leaders in terms of really speaking up about what's happening to our country, Congressman Chip Roy. But these things are not way down the path, maybe in the future. We're in the middle of it. Now back to our great guest, Dr. Carol Swain. So tell me, after all of that, I want to get that in today in the show, but forget about the, I want to keep you that if you, I can until the end. I'm going to have to move your ride. But anyway, so you see us, as you were saying a minute ago, as being already controlled by China. Can you talk about more, like, why do you see that? Well, I mean, um, I see... Oh, why do I see that? I mean, yeah. it's more than the balloon <laughs> that was allowed to float across the country and, uh, and and be shot down, you know, after it had gathered its information. But uh, we have not challenged some of the things that uh, China has done. Uh, and if you look at uh, the COVID-19, uh, 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 there's every indication that it was created in a Chinese lab uh, that what we know about it could be part of an act of war. And when you were talking about the World Economic Forum, I think we have a lot to worry about. And what we need to worry about is that many of these globalists want uh, to depopulate the world. They say that the population is something like 6.9 billion people, that the earth, you know, can only support, you know, so oh. many million. Yes. And so, I mean, many of the things that they're doing are things that I think that um, have to do with population control. And so 
at times when America seemed stronger, they never went after uh, China the way they should have for its human rights abuses, especially, you know, when it had the one-child policy, which I think has been relaxed some now. Yeah, zone uh, three, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, all of these things, um, we never stood up against China. We never. Now Trump because was. Because we are in debt, indebted, and I would tell Christians, uh, those uh, believers, to go back to Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight, where it talks about the. Uh, I know it applied to ancient Israel, but if you were to apply that to modern-day America and, and 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 to a God that judges nations, and who changes not, there are blessings for nations who obey and are God-fearing. And there are curses for nations uh, who don't. And if you look at um, the curses, you know, the foreigner among you become, will become the head, you become the tail. He'll lend to you, you'll borrow from him. And at the very end, it talks about how a oh. foreign power, you know, that uh, uh, would come and it would be successful. It would actually end up destroying Israel because of their disobedience. That God would use a heinous nation against uh, Israel, you could uh, look at America, you could look at China, and I see all this focus on Russia and the Ukraine. Um, I can tell you, and you know, like I'm not supposed to say this. I get this a lot point, of trouble you go, girl. for saying this. <laughs> but you know something? If, you, uh, if we were, were to fall to a foreign power, would you rather fall to Russia or China? And it looks like that China is the is the nation that we have bolstered. It's the nation that we're fallen to. It's the nation, you know, that grows, according to reports, people, living people for human organ, oh, organs. Yeah. Yep. All of these things that are taking place, how could the United States uh, as a moral nation be uplifting a nation like China? How could they do that? And... Um, and if you look, go back to the uh, Democratic agenda, the, the Democratic agenda under the people that have pushed uh, the Marxism, the cultural Marxism, uh, it's all about taking down the United States. And it's all about communism. And when you get into a debate with people who believe that socialism and communism is the best path, they will always still say that it was never done right. There's nothing That's wrong with communism. It was, it was, right, it was right. never done right. Yeah. And so they think that they can do it right. And it's all ludicrous what the left is doing right now. And I think that we need to wake up, and it's later than we think. I believe God judges nations. And the United States may already be under judgment, already judged. Uh, and when I look at nations, uh, China frightens me because I think that China already controls America and controls its leaders. I think many of our leaders are guilty of treason. And uh, if we were the same country we were, you know, 20, 25 years ago, some of those leaders would be in prison for treason. And yet we do nothing about it. They control our Congress. Uh, and even when good men and women go to Congress, it doesn't take long for the institution to uh, corrupt them. Absolutely true. Uh, I am with you 100% everything you just said. And you know, it's kind of funny. I had a whole different conversation in mind driving to here today. I'm thinking about, oh, I can't wait to see Dr. Swain. We're going to ask her this, ask her this. But this is a really, really compelling and important conversation. And the reason I really enjoy it, among many others, is I think when you have, uh, you know, these um, kind of drumbeat 
uh, very, very strong pro-military types warning about China. People think, well, you know, yeah, but they're just military people. But average Americans, I mean, not that you're an average American, but I mean, people who aren't military and they aren't. I know, can I mean, see what is taking place. If God has given me a gift, it's the ability to see. Yes. And also, he's taken away a lot of fear because I know that, you know, the left, in many ways, they've tried to destroy me, to destroy me, take away everything I had. Uh, they have not been successful. Uh, and so God has taken away a fear. And I believe that's more important for me to use the platforms I have to speak truth. And, you know, like, um, we're all going to die someday. God has given us this one life. And I think it's important for us to make it count and not to live our lives in fear. Absolutely. For radio listeners, you're about to go off. Uh, you, we have three more minutes to go, but you're going to go off. So go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, americacanwetalk.org. This entire wonderful interview will be up by tomorrow at least, and you can read, see past interviews, past shows. Do go check out the rest of this amazing interview and go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. Uh, Dr. Swain, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, what I was starting to say is I love that different voices are starting to realize or are talking the way that you are, uh, that the, there are certainly foreign policy experts that have been you know, waving the flag and saying we got, really need to be, pay attention to what China's doing. Is anyone watching? And then we have people exposing, as Peter Schweitzer, the author did, and others, how corrupt the Biden administration is, how connected, not that he started the corruption with China, the, the capitulation. It is but, so clear to me that the election was stolen because oh, yeah. all of these things that they're doing, it's no way, you know, the American people, the, we, the American people did not buy this. We didn't they vote didn't, for this. We no, did not did vote not. for this. They did not. And so, I mean, it's so clear that they're trying to do it so quickly. I mean, that they're in a hurry. Yes. I mean, the, the border being abandoned here in Texas, that's one of the biggest topics. Any border state will tell you, if you don't enforce your own border, you're not protecting your own country. What they've done to our military. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead you're say something. Well, in, in academia, uh, for years, they talked about uh, that America did not need to be majority white. And so part of what they have, tr I mean, uh, they have a lot of the stuff that's been done has been done by the people that are involved in social engineering, reimagining America, reimagining this, reimagining that. And uh, and so it's all by design. Yes. It's all by design. And the, th the thing about it, they use racial and ethnic minorities to um, advance their uh, agendas, but they don't care about racial and ethnic minorities. Otherwise, they would not be telling minority children that math is racist and that they yeah, uh, good, very good point. <laughs> that standards need to be lowered. Yep. You know what else? Uh, socialism is sold, and I know we're get. I know where we are in the time. I think my producer is looking in here, going, uh, "Do you know what time it is?" Yes, okay. I do. Um, <laughs> but I'll tell you, that it, this whole thing of messaging in ways that people don't see through it, and and they and you know this message of well, math is racist. It's it's supposed to be conveying we feel really sorry for you. We know math is hard when actually it's insulting. It's, it's implying because you're skin color mm -hmm. you can't do calculus. It, it's, it's just insulting beyond belief. And the other thing that has become legitimized in our society is the idea of and I, I always say you can nuance and parse definitions, but socialism, Marxism, communism, all the isms, they are floated. They have been legitimized in American political conversation, especially because Bernie Sanders ran for president, he kind of legitimized, yeah, I'm a socialist, it's uh -huh. okay. And they, people are not afraid now, when you say something is socialist, they say, yeah, isn't that great? Yeah, I mean, Even they now you say communist, they say it. And you know, this, I, Trevor Loudon had a great line last week, 
I, I, when someone asks him, what's the difference between socialism and communism? He goes, about five years. Because, right, right. yeah, once you give in to the concept of socialism, you're going to have a growing power in the federal government who's never, you're never, as Lieutenant General Flynn said, you're never going to get your freedom back. Okay, we are uh, past out of time, but that's okay. Uh, I want to make sure for our listeners, uh, Dr. Carol Swain, if they want to read more about you, I didn't do justice to your amazing resume. Where can they read about you? Well, I mean, I have several websites. One is bethepeoplenews.com. Uh, one is carolmswain.com. And I have a nonprofit, Be the People, uh, Be the People uh, nonprofit. And so uh, its goal is to advance conservative ideas and principles. I'm on all pretty much the social media uh, platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gitter, Truth uh, Social, and um, uh, I think that's enough. <laughs> That's YouTube, a lot. LinkedIn. So Dr. Carol Swaim, S-W-A-I-M, Swaim, just a, excuse me, I'm sorry, S-W-A-I-N, sorry, Swain, and she's just a, uh, just, just obviously a blessing to America, a articulate, well-educated, the life story, simply mind-blowing, uh, and here she is today trying to talk to everyone who will listen, you know, about the greatness of America, about the, uh, emptiness and actual evil of leftist ideas about the importance of the Bible and the Christian faith and the founding of America. She's just a gem beyond words. Dr. Carol Swain, thank you for coming in. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, my very fine friends, I always do at the close of every show. I tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we start our show today, uh, Asbury Revival and Saving America. Asbury College Revival Story is highlighting the stakes and the reality of 2023. Strident atheism and materialism is on a roll in the world, and that is the true enemy of America and humanity. And it is, if I didn't say it earlier, it's what those kids are reacting to. They, they are tired of and drained by and recognize the meaninglessness of atheism and materialism. The deepest questions as old as human history are being starkly confronted. What is the nature of creation, of man? What's the purpose of life? What is health? Who decides what truth and love are? Lieutenant General Michael Flynn is rare among American leaders. He gets the revival's deeper meaning. Read his recent speech to the St. Thomas More Society. The crisis is a loss of God. The way out is to refind and relearn God. And Biden appoints race agitator-in-chief. Obama's sycophant, Susan Rice, tapped by the Biden team to by Biden to implement DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion across the federal government, opens the floodgates of CRT, division, racialization of all things throughout government, eliminates meritocracy in favor of LGBTQ, etc., dominated tokenism and incompetence. This is a major overt step towards destruction of the individuality of man and woman, denial of the importance of individual morality and character. I mix those a little bit. Anyway, materialization and dehumanization of everyone into subsets of the masses. It is utterly godless. Will accelerate moral depravity and destruction and American wasteland. Americans need to return to their Judeo-Christian roots. Pray, keep praying with an expectation of answered prayer that will heal and uplift. And we're going to skip the last slide because I never got to my last story. Amazing story about the admission 
by the major journalistic sources in America that, you know, alleged, you know, uh, traditional journalism, that they just, the term that came out of their recent conference was objectivity is to be thrown away, agenda journalism is the future, you're not kidding. Thank you so very much for listening to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I do this show to speak truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you